Welcome to the We Earn Media Show, where each episode we chat with a media professional, like an editor or a journalist, and we discuss what makes a great and not so great PR journalist relationship. With me is my co-host, Jackie Lambert. In today's episode, we have Alan Henry, who is the editor of the Smarter Living section at the New York Times. Formerly, he was the editor-in-chief at Lifehacker, which is how I first got to know Alan back in 2014 when I pitched him an infographic, most likely. (laughs) So welcome to the show, Alan. Oh, thanks for having me. Before we dive into the article that you shared and that we'll be discussing today, can you tell us more about your current role as an editor of the Smarter Living section at the New York Times and also just a brief high-level summary of your career as a journalist? Oh, sure. Um, I guess to start with the Smarter Living section, uh, Smarter Living started off as kind of an archival project at the New York Times. I mean, you have a newspaper that's been around for 150 years or something like that, and and um, some of the editors at the top level of the paper had said, there's got to be a lot of stuff in our archives that would be applicable to people today, like good advice that I could give to somebody um, right now, even if we published it five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And so they started to kind of pull these archive stories out of um, out of the backlog of the paper and represent them on the, the NY Times homepage under this banner called Smarter Living. And ideally, all of it is strictly service journalism in the way that, like, it's all actionable, helpful advice to help you live a better life. It was that was around the same time that one of the masthead editors, Cliff Levy, got in touch with me when I was uh, deputy editor at Lifehacker before I'd been promoted, uh, and said, "Hey, you know, we're doing this cool thing at the New York Times. Why don't you come join me?" And I said, "No." <laughs> I I told him, you know, no, I'm not really interested in that. Uh, partially because I didn't want to move to New York City. Uh, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and um, I was com- very comfortable as deputy editor at Lifehacker. Um, my, my friend, good friend, Whitson Gordon, uh, who I still work with, uh, he freelance, he's a freelance writer now, and I'm a full-time editor, um, and he was the editor-in-chief at the time. And probably a month after I got that, that invitation, um, Whitson quit. So I was essentially next in line. I put my hat in the ring to be editor-in-chief, and they said, congratulations, you're editor-in-chief of Lifehacker now. You need to move to New York City. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so I wound up moving to New York City, and um, I still had boxes in my apartment when we got the news. And, I mean, I, this is old history to media people, but maybe not to everyone else in the world, that at the time Gawker Media was going through, um, of which Lifehacker is a part of Gawker Media back then, was uh, going through this kind of nasty lawsuit with uh, Terry Belia, a.k.a. Hulk Hogan, about an article that uh, Gawker Media had published um, uh, that included some racy uh, footage that he had had privately recorded and had been leaked to the internet. So ultimately, the, the, the lawsuit was kind of a First Amendment kind of thing. So we, inside the company, we were all confident that everything was going to be fine. I had moved to New York assuming everything was going to be fine, and I had barely started unpacking when I get a call from my uh, deputy or deputy executive editor at the time, my boss. And she said to me, uh, everything's not fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get some bad news in the morning. And she said, don't worry, everything will be okay. So long story there short, um, I, I was with uh, Life hacker through the fallout of the Gawker trial, uh, the bankruptcy that followed, and the preceding sale of Gawker Media to Univision. Um, and they had big plans for Lifehacker. Um, and I, at the time, was like, okay, this is a very turbulent environment, and I'm not totally sure I want to stay here. I just happened to email my friend Cliff at the New York Times and said, hey, do you want to talk some more? Uh, we went out for lunch, and he said to me, you know, I thought I was going to have to convince you to come work for me. And I said, oh, no, I'm actually interested to see if you would like me to come work for you. And it all just kind of fell into place there. Uh, My background, though, I mean, honestly, like that's just the recent history. My background is not actually in journalism whatsoever. I I went to school to be an astrophysicist. I got degrees in astronomy and physics. Yeah. It's it's been a wild ride. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my degrees are in astronomy, physics and business. And um, I went to grad school for business, and then I was essentially 
comfortable being a technical project manager uh, for a database marketing firm, one of those creepy firms that knows everything about everyone. Um, and yeah, it was that was a fun Terrifying. job. It also very much informed my views on internet privacy. Let me tell you. Oh, but, yeah, but um, I was a project manager for a long time, and that was kind of my in for life hacker. I was one of those people who had work experience in an office working around other people and not writing things all day. And uh, so I could communicate to people about how they could improve their office lives and their careers and things in a way that they actually appreciated because I had a background there. So, um, yeah, it was a switch from being a project manager to being a journalist. But I mean, apparently I've made it work because I'm working at the New York Times now. That's amazing. That's really amazing. That's quite the career path. I can't believe also that we dove into Hulk Hogan there for a second. (laughs) I can't believe he came up. Oh, sorry about that. I love that. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that at all. And yeah, I'm I'm not shy to talk about that whatsoever. What happened? Was that like 2013? Oh, the article was published, I think, in like 2012 or 2013. And then uh, the lawsuit came and it was a back and forth like, well, we're going to settle. No, we're not going to settle. We're going to take it to court and all this stuff all the way through 2016, I think it was 2016, 2017. Cause I moved in 2016. Wow. So yeah, it was a, it was a long process. Now, granted for those of us working there, it was safe for us to ignore it entirely mm-hmm. because we just assumed, oh, our legal team is handling this. And also we're a media organization and it's true news and it, and it's protected by the first amendment. We'll be fine. <laughs> and I mean, that may or may not ostensibly be the case in reality, but when you go to jury trial in a place that is very favorable to the person who's filing the lawsuit against you, and then also, you know, kind of personal opinion, not everybody who goes up to testify in your defense makes the most savory argument in your favor, then you wind up um, with a jury that doesn't particularly sympathize with the fact that, hey, you know, you're doing journalism here as opposed to just, you know, publishing people's sorted material and calling yourself, you know, um, protected by the Constitution, you know? Did that change your view at all on journalism, particularly in relation to, like, laws and ethics? Like, does does that change the way you work at all, or? Not especially, but it did make me way more, it, it brought me a lot closer to the kind of journalism that my colleagues at Gawker were doing. Um, because I, I, for the longest time, I just kind of, and Lifehacker in a lot of ways kind of tried to keep itself separate from the mechanisms uh, going on at Gawker Media as a whole. Um, because, you know, they were very stereotypically mean journalists, you know? I mean, granted, yeah. every everybody there are great people, and we all looked out for each other. And, and some of my best friends and closest colleagues worked with me back then and came before me, like Corey Sika, who's now the, um, the Styles editor at the Times, was an old, old Gawker head and then left to go start the and everything. But I thought of the kind of work that I was doing at the time as being not really journalism. Um, We had a a running joke around the Lifehacker staff that we're not journalists, we're just writers, because we didn't look at the things that we were doing as being so high bar. And, but then when all of this kind of came crashing around us, we, we kind of looked around at each other and said, no, no, maybe this actually is journalism. Maybe this is something that's really important. And um, whether or not, like, I, I know plenty of people who who were at Gawker at the time who will argue either way, if they had it to do over again, they'd either do it the same way or they do it differently. Um, but one thing is for sure, it shouldn't have ended the way it did. I mean, essentially being funded by somebody like Peter Thiel, who essentially wanted to obliterate a company and then put enough money into the process to do it. That's not really the way you want to see a media company go out, regardless of whether or not you liked what they did. I'm not one of those people who's like, man, I, I miss Gawker so much. Actually, I do miss Gawker so much, but there is a whole brand of people who say now, yeah, I do, but Gawker was a good website. But there are a lot of people out there who say, um, I miss Gawker so much, but they didn't come to Gawker's defense back in the day. I don't hold that against them um, because – it was easy at the time to look at what Gawker was doing and say, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with that. That kind of I'm going to turn my nose up at that. Um, and I mean, because ultimately, you know, those of us at Lifehacker, we we didn't turn our noses up. But man, did we wish sometimes that the rest of the company would stop getting the rest of us in trouble. <laughs> so, right. you know, it was so right. it definitely made me more more comfortable. It made me more it made me more careful about 
what I saw my peers doing as opposed to just blindly assuming that everything was okay all the time. And I thought it was also really interesting that New York, you you just ultimately ended up there kind of, Yeah, (laughs) it was destined to be. (laughs) It's bizarre. I, I, for a long time, I first visited New York ever in like 2010 to, because I was freelancing for PC magazine and they had this little festival uh, over at the Javits center before that neighborhood was even remotely worth visiting. And and it was called uh, Digital Life, I think it was. And I, just to give you an idea of how far back in time 2010 really was in internet years, uh, one of the banner, <laughs> yeah, one of one of the big banner booths at Digital Life was a Palm booth where they were talking about WebOS and the Palm Pre as the, oh, the newest, wow. coolest thing. Right. And I, 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 I drove up from DC to New York and stayed in a tiny little hotel that was mostly underground near the Javits center. I don't even think it exists anymore. And I went to this, this event and the, uh, the phone I was carrying on me at the time was a Motorola razor two because <laughs> I, oh, because nice. I, right. I mean, <laughs> smartphones weren't really a thing yet, although the iPhone was. And I thought, wow, the city is beautiful. It's wonderful. I would love to live here someday. And then here I am, like (laughs) six years later, essentially forced to move to New York. I didn't want to leave Washington, D.C. I like my apartment. I like my routine. But it just drew me in anyway. (laughs) I didn't didn't really have a choice. Two two neighborhoods later, I'm comfortable and I don't want to move again. (laughs) That's good. I was going to ask, like, are you happy about the move now? But it seems like you've adjusted. And... Yeah, it just, you know how it is when somebody kind of forces you to move, like you move not because you want to, because you have to. You don't, yeah. you kind of resent it for a little while and then eventually you get over it. Yeah. And you did mention a few times that you weren't quite unpacked yet. So I was a bit concerned. I was like, why hasn't he unpacked yet? Hasn't he been at the New York Times for quite some time? <laughs> No, it's so true. I'm glad you're settled Hilarious. and you're happy with your current situation. Thank you. That makes yeah. my heart happy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. There's still boxes everywhere, but that's it's because I'm lazy, not because I'm unhappy. <laughs> or you're just busy, you know, living life yeah. oh, and yes. working. Thank you. Thank you. You gave me the perfect out. Thank you so much. (laughs) So why don't we go ahead and transition into the story that you sent us? You and your team published around this time last year, I believe, on two medical startups and how they're basically helping health devices become more accessible and less of a nuisance in general. Can you give us a quick summary of that story in your own words? Sure. Um, one of my another ex life hacker writer who used to work for me and now freelances for me, uh, Eric Ravenscraft. He came to me with this idea that it would be really great to highlight this kind of good good disruption, right? Because disruption gets a bad rap for a number of good reasons, um, actually. But he he wanted to talk about services and traditionally, in his way, we wanted to talk about tech services and apps and things that helped skip over the complexities of having to see somebody like a extremely difficult to get a hold of expert or uh, a very expensive contractor or somebody like that. And let's just skip over that whole process of trying to find the right person to give you the right advice and then paying them for that advice. And instead going directly to the person who can give you the service or provide the service. Around that same time, uh, one of my one of my friends uh, in, in PR um, at Moxie, uh, Keith Schwader, he pitched me this company called Ergo, who was doing more or less that, except it was from a medical perspective. They make, um, I, I mean, I shouldn't really call them hearing aids because that's an old phrase that means a thing uh, categorically, like to the uh, FDA, hearing aid means a thing. I think they call them personal sound amplifiers. They're lightweight. They are Bluetooth. They are affordable. They are small and unobtrusive, and they're nothing like what most of us think of as hearing aids being these big, beige, bulky things with, that you rest behind your ear with a big plastic tube that goes into your ear and there's like a big old knob on the back, you know, like those are the kinds of things that we all grew Mm -hmm. up with. And ironically, those are the ones that most doctors still prescribe because the companies that make the 
them have their medical supplying companies that have ins with doctors' offices in big medical institutions around the country. Instead of trying to get into that chain, Ergo was trying to bypass the chain entirely and go directly to consumers. And I thought that was a really cool idea. So I put Eric and uh, Keith and Ergo together, and Eric started to run down these other companies that were doing similar things. They were not trying to replace a doctor, but offering some solutions that doctors would eventually just pass you through to directly to patients so then they could get the service, then go to the doctor armed with the service, uh, price, and some information and talk to their doctor, hey, I have this product here, I have this condition, seems to work for me, what do you think? And uh, so, yeah, we talked about, year ago, we talked about um, a fertility company called Modern Fertility, and there was going to be another one, but I think it didn't really fit. But ultimately, yeah, the, the goal was was uh, to talk about these medical tech services that can bypass your doctor entirely when your doctor either doesn't have a solution that would work for you or the solution that they do have is so mired in insurance or super expensive or is not as good as something else could be. I thought it was eye-opening. And I'm just trying to dissect how the whole story kind of came to be and was pitched to you. So it sounds like Keith from Moxie, you said, Mm -hmm. was he representing Ergo? Yes. He, well, he was representing Ergo, and I think either he was also representing Modern Fertility because he just had them in his portfolio, or uh, it was a colleague of his that um, was representing Modern Fertility. But I know he was representing Ergo, and he had pitched me on Ergo, and I didn't really think too much of it at first because, you know, when I was working at Lifehacker, I had the privilege of you could pitch me an app or a service or a company. I could check it out and then decide if I want to write about it. Mm-hmm. At the times, I don't really, I'm not able to do that as much because the Times doesn't just talk about X company did thing unless that company is huge like Facebook or Amazon or Google or something like that. Instead, what what the old school journalists at the Times tell me is that these stories need what's called sweep, uh, which I guess is journalistic code for relevance to a, a reader that doesn't understand why the company is important. <laughs> so, uh, so instead, we kind of – it was both him telling me about the company and saying, hey, there might be – uh, there might be a, an avenue for you to discuss this company. And the timing of Eric coming to me with this idea of saying, hey, you know, I've been having these medical problems, it was, you know, not to totally, you know, <laughs> tell all of his, spill all of Eric's tea. But um, but uh, he, he was telling me that he was having these medical problems and he wanted to talk about the fact that the going to the doctor so often wound up being a roadblock instead of a path to treatment. And he wound up doing a lot of his own research and, you know, him knowing full well, you should never trust Dr. Google. He he knew what to ignore, but he also found a lot of information that he thought was really helpful. And there are a lot of companies that were like, hey, you know, come in to us and then we can help you out or we can handle insurance and things for you. And I said, well, that's a really interesting kind of idea of these companies that want to be your one-stop shop for some kind of treatment. You know, We'll deal with your insurance if we can. We'll talk to your doctor if we can. Um, we will. Uh, we're the com- we, they, we may be more of a tech company than a medical firm, but we can at least smooth over some of the the bumps between you and actual care. I thought that was really kind of interesting and inspiring in a way because the, he he found an idea that addresses some of the common problems with at least the American medical healthcare system uh, or American medical system is mostly that you know, you you feel like you have to jump through so many hoops before you can actually find some relief or solution. And then once you do jump through all those hoops, then you have to deal with the cost. You have to deal with the insurance. And no one's ever upfront about how much these things cost. When he was talking to me about all this, I said, hey, there's this company called Ergo that a friend of mine turned me on to. They lay their prices out out front. They tell you what technology they're going to use. They'll talk to your doctor if, you know, your doctor wants to talk to them. I mean, maybe, maybe you should chat with them and see if this is an idea that will kind of take shape. He did. And I mean, they just turned out to be a perfect example of the kind of future that he was hoping we'd see in terms of like tech and medical care kind of working together to actually help people as opposed to just being kind of a, you know, profit generating thing. It is. And I, as I was reading it, it's funny because not only had I not heard of Ergo or Modern Fertility, but there were just so many other things that I learned. I had no idea that hearing aids were so expensive. 
expensive. You know, I always knew fertility treatments were terribly expensive. Just the process behind that was fascinating to me. And I can totally see what you mean by why or how you need a sweep to feature maybe a product or a big company. So as editor, Mm -hmm. do you have writers come to you with, with story ideas or like, are you typically assigning them the story ideas yourself? How does that process work? It it varies. In reality these days, it's more of an 80, 20 situation where my writers come to me with ideas that they think, Hey, this would make a really great smarter living uh, article. And then 20% of me assigning stories out to other people based on, you know, timeliness, seasonality, like summertime stuff is always something that I will farm out to the freelancers that I, I know very well. I'll just say, Hey, you know, do you, if you have any summary ideas or spring cleaning is always a thing. Um, and mm-hmm. like holidays are always a thing, you know, everybody, there's that period between September and December where everybody's going to write about holiday shopping. Everybody's going to write about black Friday. Everybody's going to write about Thanksgiving and Christmas and, and, um, all of the holidays around that same time. Um, more often than not, I find that my freelancers are the ones who are coming to me with their, uh, their story ideas. And at Lifehacker, things were a bit different because we had to pump out so much content. I mean, back at Lifehacker, all of the writers did a full feature article once or twice a week. And we each did four or five shorter articles a day. So, I mean, you're talking about a blog that published 20 to 25 articles every single day on a staff of maybe eight to 10 people. At the New York Times, the pace is much, much slower. The reason we don't have to do things like, oh, there's a company called Ergo. Let me write about Ergo. Here's all the stuff you need to know about Ergo. We don't do that because we don't have to. And also, the New York Times doesn't exist to be PR for another company. If I'm going to talk to my readers about a company, I need to explain to them why they should care. And that's what a lot of my writers try to do when they come to me, either up front saying, hey, I've talked to this PR person. I've talked to this company. Um, I think that I have a really great idea here, and I'm going to talk to these people. And that's one of my big questions when I talk to my freelancers. They pitch me an idea. I say back to them, okay, who are you going to talk to about it? What companies have you engaged about it? Um, And is there anybody I can get for you? Or is there, do you need more resources? Things like that. They'll come to me and say, hey, here's an idea I have, and here are the people I'm going to talk to. And that's usually fine. In fact, I would hate it if if somebody just came to me and said, um, hey, I have this idea that I think is really interesting, and but I have no idea who I talked to about it because, I mean, then we both need to go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, how do we take this really great grain of an idea and actually find real world reporting to back it up? Just to back up on the Ergo story, that's sure. like a PR person's dream <laughs> on our end <laughs> to be able to be featured, to have the actual company featured. It's amazing. Sure. Can you talk to me about the relationship you had with that PR person? If you remember how you even were connected with them to begin with, did he do any sort of relationship building with you leading up to this? Or was this just a cold pitch and you're like, okay, great. This fits in with what we're trying to do. No, Keith and I go way back. Uh, He, I mean, I don't want to say go way back like we were childhood friends or something. I mean, that's not how it was. There was definitely That'd be wild though. Yeah, it would be. It really, really would be. (laughs) But no, there, there was a time when Keith was just another PR person in my inbox and he had an idea and I was not interested at all. And then we moved on to the oh, next man. idea. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and so, I mean, there was definitely that time. Uh, but, but the, the nice thing about Keith was that uh, he was persistent in the right way in that he got to know the kind of work that we did at Lifehacker for one. He realized that, I mean, again, Lifehacker is kind of a, a unicorn in that way where we could just talk about a company if we thought that that company was useful to our readers. Most publications don't do that at all. The, uh, the nice thing about Lifehacker was we could totally just say, hey, this company is cool. We like it. We wouldn't write about something if we didn't like it. Because that was our rule at Lifehacker. If we didn't, if we wouldn't recommend this product or service to our aunt, who would eventually come back to us and say this thing's garbage, then we weren't going to write about it. Uh, or maybe that's just my aunt. But like the the rule was fam- <laughs> the rule was family, and so he got to know kind of what I was looking for in a story, and what kinds of products and, and services I thought were truly beneficial to people. Like for example, I do cover some technology, and I try to get Smarter Living's uh, fingers into the tech world as much as possible. But I'm more optimistic about technology than a lot of my peers at the New York Times are. I mean, I'm not naive about it, but I 
am of the mindset that technology really can give more people voices in places where they were previously voiceless. I think that technology can help improve people's lives when used properly. And I think that in many cases, technology is over-engineered to be, to feed on our own kind of trigger reward mechanisms. But at the same time, with proper education, we can break ourselves of that um, and, and lever, and we can all find that kind of place where we're comfortable using our technology. Um, and I know that that's not something that's super popular um, with some of my peers on the tech desk at the New York Times, but that's fine, right? Because their job is to skeptically cover the tech sphere, and my job is to be a service journalist to tell people, you know, here's the technology that you can use to improve your life. We, we don't face off against each other. We just sit on different ends of the table. And so Keith understood that when he started pitching. He's like, let me talk to you about things that I think truly do help people, or at least I'm going to frame my clients in, in terms of this is how this helps people live better, uh, more fulfilling, more productive lives. Uh, that won a lot <laughs> at Lifehacker because he understood me to a degree, but he also understood the mission of our outlet. When I moved to the Times, he familiarized himself with smarter living as well and realized that the mission is kind of similar, right? We're, we're also trying to improve people's lives just with a bigger platform and with kind of a broader scope. When he pitches companies to me now, he says, I'm representing this company. Here's what they do. But here's a, here's an idea. Here's uh, something that may equal like a good story for you in terms of where this company can fit. They can be a niche or a, a puzzle piece that fits into a bigger picture. We got lunch a couple weeks ago, or maybe last week it was, and he was telling me about a company that um, I think they ship plants. Uh, let me look it up real quick. Oh yeah, they deliver plants. It's 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 literally they're literally like a florist. Come on, man. And, um, but they, it's a, I mean the plants look lovely. I mean if I can name the company, the company is called Bloomscape, and they yeah, which is I mean they seem fine. The plants seem pretty on their website. I don't know anything about this company or whether they're good or bad. But he he wasn't pitching me the company as hey this company exists. He was pitching me like hey this company does a lot of stuff with plants. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you guys did a story on planting a spring garden, one of their experts might be able to help you out. That may seem a little nefarious in a way, but that's actually a really good idea. I mean, a service section of a newspaper is definitely going to do an article. Pro- I mean, would would do an article about, hey, it's springtime. You want to get outside. You want to start a garden. Here are some tips to do it. Also, I'm going to need to report it, so I'm going to need to talk to people who know about it. Okay, sure. I will talk to this company's chief plant scientist or chief gardener or whatever they're <laughs> going to call themselves. And <laughs> yeah, and that's, and that's a cool, I mean, that's a cool idea. And so, yeah, sure. When spring comes and I think about whether or not to, to do a story like that, or if a freelancer pitches me a spring gardening story, I'm going to think of this just because it fits, it fits well. And he, he went the extra mile to come up with a way to frame it. So it would fit in my mind. Yeah. It stuck out to you and, mm-hmm. and it made it seem as if Bloomscape was more than a florist. Right. I mean, lots, you can order plants from lots of websites. So this, yeah. they're, they're not unique in that regard. But he found a way to make it relevant to not just my line of coverage, but to something that might be beneficial to me as a journalist. Okay. You said that you find it really helpful when other PRs provide you with an expert that you can talk to. Along yeah. with that, what other kind of assets do you find helpful? Always, always, always uh, familiarize yourself with the outlet. Um, and familiarize yourself with the person that you're pitching. Because I, I find, I mean, there are, I mean, not every firm is the same, and I know this. Uh, so some people are literally like, here's an email list, send the same thing to everybody. And that's just what they do. So they don't have time to do anything more. If you want to increase your chances of success, uh, it's super helpful to me to understand why this company or why this person or why whoever you're or whatever you're representing is relevant to my outlet or my section. I get a lot of pitches uh, to the Smarter Living section that would be much more at home in other parts of the paper because my email address is easier to find than somebody else's. I get the pitch. And at the end of the day, in some cases, I have a relationship with that editor so I can forward it. In other cases, it's obvious that they didn't care, so I may not forward it or I have other things to do so it'll sit in my inbox so long 
long that it's not relevant anymore. So it just it works best for everyone to, to just do that extra little bit of research. Experts to talk to, offering me experts to talk to is good. I mean, one thing I find is unless you are pitching somebody who works in business, giving them numbers like, oh, they just did an X round of X million dollars and brought on ABC person from QRP firm and private equity, whatever. I, I could care less mm-hmm. about oh, all of yeah. that stuff. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, and it was especially useless when I was at Lifehacker because those were immediate disqualifiers. If you're telling me about the funding that some company got, I could care less and neither does the average Lifehacker reader who wants to know how this applies to their lives. You know, Just kind of keep it strictly towards the person you're talking about, offer them some resources that they would probably find helpful in doing a story and kind of get an idea of what the story would look like rather than being, I mean, cause I know a lot of, a lot of PR folks are like, I'm grateful for any mention whatsoever. <laughs> and, and that's oh, fine. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> the truth, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, and that's, that's totally fine, but also like it helps me as a, as an editor or a writer a lot to say to me, here's how you might want to mention them. Maybe this fits in with, uh, with the way that you would put a story together. And of course, I'm happy to talk to you about it. So mm-hmm. those things help me out a lot. Kind of related to that. Um, let's say somebody does have a company they're representing and then they have like a story that they think would be a good story for the smarter living section that that company would fit in with. Mm-hmm. Do you prefer that the subject line focus on that story idea itself or do you want it to focus on the name of the company and all that? Or um, do you open every email? <laughs> I am, I am, this is, this is not going to be a terrible, terribly helpful answer because I am That's that okay. unicorn. <laughs> I'm that unicorn who opens every email I get. Oh, okay. That's I, cool. I, I, yeah, but I mean, I'm also insufferable about inbox zero. <laughs> like, oh. I, have, I, I, I mean, working at a productivity blog for like six years will do that to you. I've got two new emails in my inbox right now, and it's driving me nuts. <laughs> like, uh. that's, that's, how, that's how bad I am. When I do get a lot of email, and I do get a lot of email, it's more helpful if I see the subject line is the story idea and not the company. Uh, because the story idea is relevant to my line of thinking more often. I'm thinking about stories. I'm thinking about what am I going to put up in Smarter Living next? What is our next big initiative going to be? What's what's the, the big project I want to tackle soon? I'm not thinking in terms of XYZ company, nor would I even rec- recognize a company name if it were in my inbox. I might not know who Ergo was if Keith had just said, you know, re ergo. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you ever check your spam folder? I ask everybody this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I do. Yes, finally. You're the first person. <laughs> really? Well, you're person number three, so maybe oh, we'll good. get more. But so far, you're the first person to actually check your spam. Oh, so. my goodness. I've lost so many important things in spam <laughs> uh, that, like, I can't not. And also, I'm also a little aggressive with filters. Um, I And this is another thing I inherited from my life hacker days because we had mail filters for everything. And, uh, oftentimes like I would accidentally wind up sending all of like my admin assistants emails to spam because they had something in their subject line or their, uh, their email signature <laughs> that triggered a filter, you know, that, that yeah. kind of thing happens. And so I always, 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 always check my spam filter or spam folder, maybe not all the time, but maybe like, you know, once a week or so just to make sure I haven't missed anything that's actually important. Do you ever find important pitches in spam or is it mostly just spam? It's mostly just spam. It's okay. mostly, <laughs> I mean, every now and again, I might find like a personal message, you know, something that from someone that was a pitch, but like, even if I wasn't interested, like it was actually an email from someone I knew. So I would want to be able to go back to them and say, Hey, yeah, I got your email. There was uh, one of my friends. Yeah, actually, uh, Ed Zitron, he, I don't know what he did, at some point, but I guess he, some enough people had flagged his old email address as spam oh. to the point where like I wasn't getting his mail anymore and I didn't have a filter. And I was like, I don't know what you're doing, man. Like all of your emails <laughs> are going to spam and I, I can, I can set them to never go to spam, but I'm not, it's, it's going to spam by default. You got to do something. That's my That's worst nightmare. <laughs> it sounds like Alan, that you're very organized. So this might be a silly question. Do you keep 
keep all of, you know, your PR peeps and their clients that they represent in a document somewhere so that you have something to reference when you're writing a story and you need to think of a source that you might be able to tap? Uh, no, (laughs) I do not. I'm not that organized, but I just, ironically, I mean, I just have to tell you, I just have a a decent memory for that kind of thing. Um, and also, you know, if I'm writing a story, especially if I'm writing a story, I keep those things like up in tabs. And so I can easily refer to them without like, I'll keep that email up in a tab or I'll like copy paste that person's name or their last email to me into a blank Google doc and write around it or above it or something. So I can refer down to it quickly. Yeah. And I also try to make a point to strike while the iron's hot. I keep relationships with the people that I talk to frequently. I remember when X person emailed me last, here's who they were representing. Oh, they were representing X person before. Are you still representing X person? And I'll shoot them an email back and, you know, let them know that uh, I might be interested in talking to somebody at that company. Yeah. I just kind of have a good memory for it. I don't have to keep a spreadsheet or anything like that, but it's probably a good idea now that you mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's working for you. So yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I I'll freely admit that like, I don't always remember who everybody represents and a lot of people will pop into my inbox and say, Hey, Alan, you know, I haven't talked to you in a while. We used to talk back in, in, in X time. And I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea who you are. <laughs> and yeah. And, but I mean, that's just the nature of getting so many emails. And Mm -hmm. if it is, if it is usually, and I do spend an inordinate amount of time doing this, like if I don't remember, I'll like search my inbox for that person's name and then go back and be like, Oh yes, I remember you used to talk to me about this person. I never replied. I'm so sorry. And then we'll go from there. So (laughs) I have a question. PR people do that a lot too. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of like maybe you get one response and you're like, Hey, best friend. It's been a long time. Let's chat. Oh no. (laughs) Okay. Uh, is it it's though? Part of the it game. Sounds, is it? It sounds like such a lonely profession at times. Like it can be. Oh. Well, on that topic, <laughs> you mentioned though that you recently grabbed lunch with Keith, and yeah. yes. I'm really curious to know, in your opinion, what's the best way to build a relationship with you that's not necessarily through email? Ooh, that okay. With me, it's difficult because I am socially awkward, if you couldn't tell, and <laughs> um, I like very low pressure, low stakes kind of setups. Like getting lunch with me is a pretty tall order because then you've essentially committed me for like an hour. Let's grab coffee, you know, let's grab coffee or something like that. Let's sometime when, you know, either I'm not in the office or I'm on the way to the office or drinks after work. Or if if you don't drink and a lot of people don't drink, let's just grab like soda or something. Waters. Waters after work, you know? Yeah, that's totally fine. Like I have friends, I I have plenty of journalist friends who don't drink and they feel awful because there's such a journalist culture about getting cocktails after work and especially in New York oddly I'm like no we don't have to go drink let's go get milkshakes after work let's go to Shake Shack after work and get ice cream you know that's way more fun ice cream's better anyway and I'm sober when I hit the train home so like (laughs) it's fine Um, but the the best way for me one um, try to build a personal connection with me as a person beyond just who you're pitching one way Keith did it uh, he and I both play a lot of video games which is you know kind of a niche hobby in a way, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, like when he's pitching me companies that have nothing to do with video games, he'll say, Hey, I saw on Twitter, you were playing X I'm playing. Why, why should, do you think I should try it? Or like, you know, what, what other games are you playing these days? You know, just, it just happened to be that one, he was talking to me about video games one day when I was just kind of bored at work. And he was like, well, let's grab coffee next week. And we can talk about the, you know, season three of apex legends or something. And so we did. And um, so we got together to talk about video games and yeah, sure. Near the end, the conversation turned to how can we work together, you know, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't, Hey, I came with this folder full of companies I'd like to review, <laughs> or I'm asking you to get coffee so we can talk about these companies I represent. No, we really spent like 40 minutes talking about games and then 10 or 15 minutes talking about how, how things work in smarter living, how he can be an asset or helpful to me and what the easiest way to correspond with me is. Does he want me to, do I want him to email me every week or just kind of whenever something new is going on and stuff like that? And I mean, the answer I think almost any journalist will tell you is just email me when something's going on. Don't try and keep a regular email cadence because ultimately it'll just fade into into the static in the background. Yeah, we just do that. And every now and again, he'll pitch me something and we'll talk briefly and then he'll say, hey, you want to get coffee soon? And eventually, you know, you just kind of, it 
becomes routine. That's really cool. I'm, I kind of struggle with that. I've connected with certain journalists that I feel like are just easier to connect with other ones. I'm always like, where do I even start? Do you, I mean, obviously the connection with the video games is easy. Have you ever felt like people have been a little disingenuous with that technique? And by when I call technique, I just mean like, has anyone tried to connect with you in a way where you're like, "Mm, I don't know if you know anything about video games, you're just kind of bullshitting me right now. (laughs) I mean, I try not, I mean, I'm not that bad. I don't like try to gatekeep hobbies or anything, but but I definitely know when somebody's like, hey, um, you seem to like thing that you recently tweeted (laughs) and I represent thing maker, you know? Yeah, that's 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 when I can tell. That's when I can tell it's a little bit obvious. And also I can tell it's it's super obvious when like somebody really is picked up not on me as a person, but something I specifically said or wrote very recently. Like the easy tell. Yeah, the easy tell is like, hey, I saw you tweeting about bananas last week because (laughs) I retweeted a joke that had a banana in it. You know, like, come on, that's not you don't that you're you literally scrolled through my timeline to find something you could you could peg a pitch on you don't have to do that like you could just follow me on twitter and reply to me a couple of times or say hey you know can i send you a dm you know we could just talk like normal people because ultimately at the end of the day all of us are we're just normal people and in many cases you know we're all just looking for some validation in our lives so you know the easiest way to a journalist's heart for sure is flattery and just um just come to the dms armed with, uh, Hey, I really appreciate your work and we'll be eating out of your hand. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think back of all the pitches that I send you and I'm like, gosh, I hope I was never one of those people. (laughs) Trust me, if you, if you were, we wouldn't be talking right now because, because I mean, like it's, it's pretty clear. Like I open your emails, even if I don't reply, I read them, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, like, I mean, you emailed me. Wow. When was it? Yeah. Like on, on January 14th and I got back to you on the 22nd and I'm like, I'm a terrible person. And it's been 14 days since you emailed me. I would still love to chat. You were like, oh, don't be sorry. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> like, oh, you are. Oh my gosh. That, that made my day. Eh? <laughs> and PR people, we rarely have journalists apologizing to us for oh. delayed responses. And so that was really nice. And you did not have to apologize though, for real. Oh. It kind of actually leads me to a really good question that I've been meaning to ask you. It's kind of shifting gears a bit, but so sure. when it comes comes to the follow-up, how often do you like to receive follow-ups? Like, how do you feel about them in general? Um, once or twice. And well, it depends. So if we've established some kind of like communication, right? You email me, I have emailed you back in the past, follow up with me maybe once, maybe once mm-hmm. or twice at most. Um, yeah. If you've emailed me and I never email back or I haven't emailed back uh, and it's been like, you know, weeks or a week, maybe follow up once, but don't push it. I, I definitely get a lot of pitches from people who are completely unfamiliar with what I I do and completely unfamiliar with the section. And then they'll follow up two or three or four or five times. And I'm just like, in the time it took you to follow up, you could have understood innately why this wouldn't work for me. There's kind of always a scale in my head where if I feel like I have to spend more time explaining to you why this pitch doesn't work, then it would take for me to just kind of archive it and move on. Then I probably won't reply. And it's, it kind of sucks. But I mean, at the same time, you know, we're all busy people. You could spend that time pitching somebody that would actually appreciate getting that email. But yeah, maybe once or twice, especially if we have a rapport. But if not, if we don't have that rapport, I mean, sometimes don't even bother because I know I know for some journalists, I'm not like this personally, but I know follow-up is essentially a death now. So like if you email me something, I might keep it in my inbox. If you follow up later and say, hey, I just want to make sure you got my email. Of course I got your email. Emails don't vanish, you know? Like <laughs> it, they're just they're just going to archive it and be like, okay, forget this. So I love that. Emails don't vanish. I've totally been guilty of being like, um, I don't know if you've received this because I'm always like what's a good transition like how do I yeah. like yeah I'm gonna stop hard. using it's, that <laughs> it's hard because I mean sometimes like I mean admittedly like we were just talking about spam filters sometimes an email will get sucked into a spam filter but that doesn't happen so often that you'd be like I just just want to make sure that you m- didn't miss this most people don't quote unquote miss things you know it's not relevant or they right. choose not to mm-hmm. look at it for me a better thing is hey I emailed you about this a week ago I just wanted to see if it was useful to you or 
I want to see if it's relevant. I won't follow. I mean, and always, I really always appreciate it when somebody says to me, Hey, I just wanted to follow up maybe once, but I won't bother you again. See that up, seeing that, that up front kind of puts me back in the first email position where I'm like, you know what, if this is useful, I'm going to leave it in my inbox and I'll get to it eventually versus somebody being really aggressive. Like, I just want to make sure that this didn't, you know, not make it to your inbox or finding my other email addresses and sending the same pitch around. I mean, I've had people do that and that's really unnerving because I, then you start feeling like you're being stalked. <laughs> so Yeah. So people have found like your, I'm assuming Gmail or whatever. And just, um, I'm assuming you're a Gmail person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have, I mean, I have probably five or six email addresses because I am, I am a relic of the days when we used to register domains for fun. <laughs> and so like, I mean, I have a bunch of email addresses for different purposes. Like I have a personal email address that I just used for like signups and stuff. I use an email that I give out to my friends. I have an email that I use for like professional, like, you know, not New York times business. Um, I have my New York times email address. And if somebody like finds those other addresses and starts emailing me, I'm kind of like, Whoa, this is awkward. And also yeah. kind of creepy. So, um, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I, most, most people would never do something like that. I, uh, oh, cringe. I never want to be the creepy PR person. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I find, ironically, like most people, I, most PR people that I've met who think that they are creepy or are worried about being creepy are not the creepy ones. <laughs> the, the creepy ones are the ones who have no self-awareness and will just, just do whatever they think they need to do to land that contact. And like, those are the, if, if you're worried, like, oh, I don't ever want to be that creepy person. You never will be. Trust me. <laughs> I think that honestly covers on that note, <laughs> covers all of the questions that I had. And I think Jackie had as well. But I did want to kind of turn the mic back over to you. If you have yeah. any other advice or tips or anything like that, that you want to um, leave words before of words of wisdom. Yes. Before yeah. we end the call. Yeah, actually, you know, one thing that I would advise many PR people to understand is something that you all probably know already. You outnumber us like dozens and dozens to one. This industry is so messed up right now <laughs> to the point where like there are so few journalists, especially full-time journalists doing a lot of work. And this isn't an excuse to be like, you know, forgive us when we, you know, or when we ignore you or we're rude or anything, there's no excuse ever, frankly, for any professional to be rude to any other professional, frankly, at least in my opinion, just understand that this industry is a mess right now. And even a lot of journalists are looking at journalist journalism adjacent careers. So some of us might be looking at you to be like, hey, you know, how do I get in on this sweet, sweet PR deal that you guys have? And <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a mess right now in, in a lot of newsrooms, you know, with like this past year in 2019, there were so many layoffs in the journalism industry in general. And I mean, that me that leads to fewer full-time writers and editors and, uh, and way more freelance writers and editors. And I would also, I tell a lot of PR folks to not be afraid to familiarize yourselves with a lot of the freelance out there who have good clips because they're they're in an almost more reliant position where if you come to them with a story idea they'd be really they, it's really behooves them to take it to a publication because then they can get paid so you get paid they get paid and then the editor at a full-time publication gets to keep their job because they've published a story in their section so those freelance writers are probably going to be a huge asset for PR folks going forward that's one thing I, I, I some of my favorite writers, uh, people that I've worked with in full-time jobs or not, and who were freelancers for me at other uh, publications, are freelancing for me now. Whitson Gordon used to be my boss, and I freelance. He, he freelances for me now. Eric Ravenscraft used to be my employee, and he freelances for me now. And these folks come to me with story ideas all the time, and we sit in a Slack together just to kind of chat and reminisce about old times, and some of their story ideas come out of just our informal conversations. So making those personal connections with people who are doing a lot of the writing would really, really help. It's not all of us with at Condé Nast, at NY Times, at Washington Post email addresses that can really take those pitches. That's one thing. The other thing I tell a lot of PR folks is um, to not take crap from journalists. <laughs> I, I know I am kind of, you know, betraying the trust a little bit, but like I work with a lot of journalists and some of them are insufferable people. And you like even just even just over the course of the past hour we've been talking, you guys have been super kind and super warm to me about things like, uh, I haven't, I didn't email you back in like two weeks.
weeks. If I didn't email one of my colleagues at the Times back in two weeks, they would absolutely hold it over my head. And they write, they have the right to do that, right? I mean, it took me a while to, to say something to them that ultimately will behoove me too. Like, you invited me to do this, and that's wonderful. Thank you so much for doing it. I shouldn't have had to keep you waiting for two weeks to say yes. You know what I mean? Journalists give PR folks a lot of pushback. And I know that the PR industry can be a mess too, but that's no excuse for journalists to like go on Twitter and like harangue the crap out of the industry or harangue the crap out of specific PR people. Like that's not okay. No one should feel like they have to work with somebody like that. Thank you. Thank you. This is such a nice way to end things. Yeah. It honestly, it speaks to a lot of the reasons why Jackie and I are doing this as a PR person. We've, there are, have been times when I wish I were in the shoes of a journalist and I wasn't at the whim of the response that I need from them. That wasn't like my job wasn't relying on that email or that response from a journalist who will cover my client. So it's really nice to hear, you know, that we're all facing similar struggles and we all just are humans and to treat each other as such and realize that, yeah, we're just trying to make things work. And it's important to remember that the human connection part of it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, and if things don't work out or a story doesn't work out or it's not a comfortable relationship, that's fine. But Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just no reason for us to like, you know, tar and feather each other. That's silly. We are all kind of in this industry together in some way, shape or form. We depend on each other. It's true. I loved it. I love both of those tips. I'm so happy you brought them up. Thank you. Um, Yes. I'm glad. I'm glad. We want to try to end these episodes by giving kudos to our fellow VR friends, giving shout outs. You've already gave a number of shout outs, um, yeah. one especially to Keith from Moxie. Yeah, he he used to be a journalist. And oh, um, cool. so, yeah, and I mean, that's one thing. Like, I, I love meeting PR people and working with PR people who used to work in journalism or journalism adjacent even because they kind of innately understand. Yeah, they understand how awful this industry can be and um, and how great it can be, too. Wow, I've said a lot of that. But <laughs> but. <laughs> Um, yeah, he's great. And, you know, we get coffee every now and again. We'll get lunch every once in a while. He'll offer to pay and I won't let him. And sometimes I do. <laughs> and uh, and then I'll pay other times just in case any of my peers at the Times listen to this ever. <laughs> and um, and he's, he's just wonderful because he goes that extra mile to kind of understand what I do and what matters to me in our coverage, like what good coverage looks like to me. And then he can kind of massage his story ideas and his, his the companies he represents into what would be good for not just me, but for our readers, ultimately. The other person that I wanted to think I wanted to thank is uh, Lise Keeney, also a great friend. She is a director at, at Day One Ventures. I met her when she was working uh, at Small Girls. She was a huge Lifehacker fan. <laughs> the, the, the time that I really knew that she knew what was up was when she showed up at a Lifehacker meetup um, when she was representing a company. I think she was representing Shapeways. We were friends before this, but... Um, um, Shapeways being a 3D printing company. And she showed up at a Lifehacker meetup with all of these cool little 3D printed things because she knew that Lifehacker was all about DIY stuff. And we were talking about 3D printing and it was kind of coming into the mainstream at the time. So she came with all of this stuff to show us stuff we didn't know could be made yet with the technology that we were talking about on the website. And uh, it was just so enchanting because she understood not just us and our interests, but not and not just the outlet, but the potential potential for the things that we were kind of advocating. And she came to us with like actual concrete examples of, hey, this thing that you are encouraging people to do, this is one of the potential endpoints. They can do this kind of art or they can make these kinds of parts to fix their own things. This is the possibility of this technology once it gets to a point where everybody's reading what you're writing about it. And I just remember thinking that that was really, really, really special because she didn't just see her client and us as a kind of match to be made. She actually saw kind of that broader view of like, you know, we want to imp- we want to actually help improve people's lives. And there's this big, vague mission that's beyond like getting an article out the door today. That was really, really cool. And it's actually surprisingly rare. Yeah. And also just to touch and feel and see the product that somebody's yeah. pitching you to is so rare these days and yeah. probably helps tremendously as well. And, and not many people even think to go that extra mile to bring along the no, product not itself. I mean, so. she's, she's lucky in a way because like one word that I absolutely hate seeing in my my inbox is desk side. And um, I would never have agreed to a time where she could just come and show me these things. But she was a fan of the site. So she knew when we were having like a reader get 
together. And she came, and mostly because she was a reader, but also because she brought along these little extra kind of treats to show us. And she showed it to us, and she talked a little bit about them. But then she was there as a friend and a reader, not as a PR person who came to crash the event, you know, which was also really, really nice. Aww. Yeah, that is That's nice. great. Well, thank you so much for thank being you. on the show. Your oh, insights no. are so valuable. Oh, and thank you. I genuinely think so many PR folks are just going to glean actionable takeaways from this one. So <laughs> I really accomplished then. Good. Yes. Good. Yes. yes. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks again for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Earn Media. If you head over to weearnmedia.com, you'll find a summary of the episode along with links to any of the resources and more information about our lovely guest and where you can find them online. If you have any topic suggestions or just general PR questions for us or future guests, email us at podcast at weearnmedia.com. Of course, you can also find us on social media. Our handle is at weearnmedia and we're on Twitter and Instagram. 